welcome to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Everett Fox, who was also with us last week to explore Parsha Noach, and this week we'll be exploring Lech Lecha. Professor Fox, over to you to explore that. Thank you again for inviting me. As I said last week, the division of these parashiot is somewhat arbitrary, but we work with them nevertheless, and one sometimes discovers all kinds of interesting structures that can be put together. So there are a number of issues that I want to raise about this particular reading. It's curious because, like Genesis itself, it starts a little bit in the middle. Instead of a kind of more logical starting point, which would be actually the end of chapter 11, the last few verses, that talks about Terach and his sons and his grandson and uh, Avram and his wife, Sarai, could have started there in some kind of biographical way, although it tells us nothing about Avram's childhood, which I'll get to in a moment, nor about his profession, nor about why they leave Ur to travel to the land of Canaan. So these are all matters for speculation or investigation. But the old father, Terah, dies, and that ends a section very nicely, as biblical texts often do. When in doubt, have somebody die, and that's the end of the section. Well, that's true with a lot of literature as well. The Iliad ends with the funeral of Hector, for instance. But this parasha, Lech Lecha, begins, therefore, not with Avram's birth or his maturation, but it begins with the most maybe the second most dramatic moment in his life where God speaks to him. And notice, interpreters have, there is no background at all. There's no scenery. There are no costumes. There's no time of day. There's no weather. There's no form of God. There's no interpretation of the sound of God's voice. There is no description of Avram's psychological state, merely that God talks to him, and he talks, you know, the message itself is strong enough to start traveling to the land that I will show you, and you'll be a blessing, and I'll make a great nation of you. It's a little strange because he's already pretty old and there's no child, but we'll get to that. But he makes this statement in dramatically rhythmic form, and this is another aspect of the Bible, especially biblical narrative, that I would like to emphasize is that one cannot ignore the rhythmic nature of these texts. They are not written in paragraphs. They're written in some kind of semi-poetic form. And this is a wonderful example of that. God could have just said to Avram, travel to the land of Canaan, or travel to the place that I will show you. Start walking, and I'll tell you when to stop. It would have been clear enough. Instead, what do we get? Three descriptors 
of where he's leaving. We usually don't say where we're leaving from unless we're entering it into, you know, MapQuest or something like that. But here, there's this threefold emphasis on the leaving. Now, of course, as many interpreters have noticed, there is something about the rhythm of this and also the wording that appears uh, again with the Akedah when, uh, unlike this week, when Avram is asked to leave his past behind, his dead father and his homeland, in chapter 22, Avraham, as he is by then called, has to leave or is asked to leave the future behind to kill his son, to end the continuity that we have been seeking and therefore end the book and the whole story. So this is the great bracket of the uh, Avraham stories. Lech lecha, same verb used again. Kachna et mincha et asher ahavta et Take now your son, your only one whom you love. Yes, Yitzchak. So I would like to raise another issue here, which is when we meet Avram, he is already an adult in the last parasha. And certainly now when we meet him for this journey that he is about to take, we are told that when he arrives, he's 75 years old. So there's a number of things to observe here. Number one, what do we do with the numbers in these stories? And this applies to many biblical stories. If he's 75 when he arrives and when the story really starts, that seems a bit exaggerated. Of course, he has his son Yitzhak when he's 100. What are we to do with these numbers? And quite simply, they are patterned numbers. I don't believe they're meant to be seen as exact numbers. It's notable that Avram lives He's 75 when he gets to the land. He's 100 when Yitzhak is born. He dies at 175. So we're 75 is on either end. And as was discovered a long time ago, in fact, the ages of the patriarchs are all interesting square multiples. Just to run it down, you may have heard this. Uh, Avraham is seven times five squared. Yitzhak five times six squared, and Yaakov three times seven squared. Now, that's obviously a pattern. It's a way of saying that history is meaningful. It's not just a string of unrelated events. Should we worry about the fact that we don't know anyone who's 175? I would say no. Did they have more yogurt in those days? A doubtful, although perhaps a little bit more. But it does seem clear that the numbers are more of a message than they are to be taken literally. Students sometimes ask, did they measure years differently than we do? The answer is probably not. So that's one thing. But there's another more serious issue here, which is that we meet Avram when he is a fully grown person, apparently prominent, wealthy and we have virtually no background about him. Some scholars have theorized that he was a donkey driver or some other profession. But the question that often comes up is, how does he attain the idea of monotheism? How does he come to the idea of one God? And any Jews who have had any elementary Jewish education, of course, know the famous story of the boy Avram working in his father's idol manufacturing shop, and the wisdom of this child is he's already figured out that these gods are just wood and stone, and so he 
breaks one, and when the father comes back, the kid blames one of the other idols, at which point the father angrily says, that's ridiculous, they're just made of wood, to which the childish retort is, well, if they're not really gods, why do you worship them, etc. So this is a favorite story of Jewish children. It's one of the main stories that is remembered into adulthood. I'm convinced it's not because children are inherently interested in monotheism, but because this is a story about a child making his father look like a fool, and who could resist a story like that? In any event, it brings up a more serious issue, which is that the idea that Avraham was some kind of great philosopher, that he, in many stories, looked at the heavens or somehow came up with this idea that there's only one God, and, and Jews and Christians and Muslims can all thank him for that, that idea is simply not suggested by the text. In the text, Avraham is a progenitor. He is the great-great-grandfather. He is, to be sure, a wise and pious person, and he passes many divine tests, leaving home, almost sacrificing his son. He'll do anything for God. He stands up for justice, tries not to allow God to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Amorah, all these to his credit. But one thing that is not on his resume, at least in the Bible, is philosopher or theologian. So the question must arise then, where does this idea come from that has become such a part of Jewish tradition? And I presume the answer is that in the Hellenistic and Roman world, late in the biblical period, these issues of belief and philosophy come to the fore. We have many moments in the Talmud where some Roman, especially a wealthy Roman lady, will ask Rabbi so-and-so, why is it that God does this? And they have these wonderful little debates. So this seems to have been a favorite topic of those periods. But to the Torah itself, this does not seem to be a major concern. So it's a good example of how later tradition can point us in a certain direction, an important direction, which may or may not have its origin in the text, or sometimes a very flimsy origin, but then gets developed later on. Now, I do want to mention a few other things. One is that Sarai, Avram's wife, is barren, and one should always take that as a hint, an obvious hint of what's to come. If there's a barren wife in the Bible, she is, A, going to have a child, of course, and B, he's going to be an important child. This always happens. Another thing is the brevity of Ram's journey. God tells him to go. It says he took Lot, his nephew, and all these other people and his possessions, and he went to go to the land of Canaan, Canaan. And when he got to the land of Canaan, this is what happened. It's very unusual in world literature to have a hero who embarks on a journey and to have that last for the space between the lines instead of all kinds of adventures with monsters and ogres and rivers to cross and demons and other obstacles. The Bible pretty much does away with that here and in many other places as well. It takes this mythic journey and it compresses it 
because the, the text is really more interested in where this is all going, namely the encounter of the person with God. There are some exceptions, but this is a notable example of how the journey itself takes place very quickly, and we get to what's important, which is being in the land. One very quick remark to conclude, which is that as you read through this parasha, and indeed all the stories about Avraham, what you encounter is really a series of vignettes. I would almost call it scenes in the life of Abraham, as if it shows him perhaps on the journey with the camels and so on, and the curtain goes down, and then a little intermission, and then the curtain goes up, and now they're sitting in the tent. In other words, these are moments. This is not a continuous biography. They are moments when the spotlight is on this character designed to teach us something about who he is and why he is a model of some kind. When we get to some later characters, such as Yaakov, Jacob, then we get a fuller biography, starting even in the womb. I don't know of too many other characters in world literature whose experience in the womb is described, but this one we do have from almost conception to death. So the Bible will do that, but not here. Here, they're really only interested in Avraham and God and their relationship, which of course becomes then extremely important and even extends beyond death when Jews in later centuries felt themselves to be in trouble. They often called upon Father Abraham to intercede. Sometimes he even appears to Hasidic rabbis. They have an encounter on the road, and he's, he's an emissary between heaven and earth and well suited for the task. But in the Bible, of course, we're not there yet. So I'll be happy to take some questions. Professor Fox, thank you uh, once again for taking us through the journey that is Lech Lecha. And fascinating, again, your allusion to film, I suppose, with the, the perfect vignettes that we see mm. in the life of Abraham. I wonder if you might address the history of how Abraham came to be and how his character fits the Jewish journey. Aha. You say how he came to be. I guess from a historical, historical literary perspective, perhaps. Aha. Well, those are always the fun questions because they are fairly unanswerable. If you ask 10 scholars what they think is the likely date that Avraham would have lived, they will come up with 10 different answers spaced a number of centuries apart. So very hard to pin that down. Some of us like to joke that if you look at biblical scholarship over the last 100 years, there was a time when Abraham was thought of as a historical character, and here are the reasons. And then they said, well, we're not so sure. Let's go to Moses and the come out with all the proofs. Well, now not, you know, there's arguments about it. And then David. So now we're down to about the ninth or eighth century BCE. It's very hard to recover what we might call historical information. Is Abraham a totally made-up character? Many of us don't think so. Can we prove it? No, not really. But his importance for the Jewish journey, I suppose, is his trust in God, despite the fact that he's very old. I mean, he needs to have this child. All these promises are made, descendants and land, and 
He has no children. And even at the end of the story, when he buries his wife, he owns a cave and a field. That's it. <laughs> so, you know, something's a little bit askew here. So his faith seems to be extremely important. He's, of course, willing to sacrifice his son, which not all Jews have ever been happy with, but they understand that he passes the test, and especially that he stands up for justice. In other words, that, that part of him emerges as a role model. He doesn't have to step in and plead with God for the cities not to be destroyed. And what does he do? He behaves like he's in the Middle Eastern shook. He bargains God down from 50 to 10. A remarkable scene that I don't think you'll find anywhere else in the ancient world. You don't find somebody arguing with Zeus for pages and pages without being reduced to a little pile of ashes. So I think it's this combination of faithfulness, trust, interest in justice, and, you know, eventually being connected to the land and all these descendants. So he, of course, is beloved for Jews and Christians and Muslims. My wife belongs to a women's book group. It's met for many years of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. They call themselves the Daughters of Abraham, and everybody likes that title. They feel comfortable with that. So we have struggled with these figures, but there's a certain intimacy with them. And certainly Abraham is as Avraham Avinu, you know, Father Abraham, he certainly occupies that uh, pride of place in Jewish thinking. We spoke last week about the progression of God we see in the Parshiot of Bereshit and Noah. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder where, with this relationship between God and, and Abraham, we get to by the end of this Parsha in terms of the biography of God. Yeah, well, I think uh, God trusts him. I mean, Abraham is spoken of in Jewish tradition as as God's friend. You can't do any better than that. And so presumably God has found in him and hopefully his family the ideal vehicle for transmitting the major ideas of truth and justice and faith and is willing to stick with the people. And later in the Bible, and later in Jewish tradition, of course, he is the God of Abraham. Jews come to rely on this idea when they're in trouble. As I said before, the heavenly Abraham as the intercessor. So that works. When all else fails, you rely on the merit of the ancestors. And we have, of course, many, many medieval and later prayers that depend on that. So these are the people that you can rely on. It's almost like a a business thing. Well, you may not be able to trust me, but you remember my father or my grandfather. You guys were partners. This is my yichas. This is my background. So you can rely on me. So God seems to be pretty much locked in by the end of this. He has a covenant with Avraham. He has a brit, an agreement. That will, of course, be expanded later on to the whole people. But his name survives as kind of the major conduit. And I think Christians sense that as well. At some point, Abraham appearing with Jesus, if I recall. And there's a real recognition that there is this connection. So he is the quintessential pious ancestor, the great ancestor upon whom we rely and upon whom God relies, apparently, to get his work done. 
Professor Fox, thank you so much for taking us through Parsha Lech Lecha and for joining us now for the last two weeks. It's been wonderful to hear all your fascinating insights. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about our exciting content that we have for you at our mothership, jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye.